Great Britain and France, for example, you will find two countries that were extremely traumatized by their experiences in the war. And to a large extent, this trauma helps explain why during the 1930s, when the international system was confronted by a series of international outlaws, Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, fascist Italy, they chose the policy of appeasement over the policy of confrontation until 1939. If you take a look at two of the other victor nations, Japan and Italy, they both came away from the war feeling that they had not gotten from the war uh, what they had put into it. And last but not least, if you take a look at the United States, the war left the vast majority of Americans extremely disillusioned. And by the 1930s, the vast majority of Americans had reached the conclusion that the United States had made a terrible mistake entering World War I. And this explains why during the 1930s, um, so many Americans uh, supported the policy of isolationism. So, Robert, focusing on Europe, what would you add to the decade or so after World War I? Okay, a couple of things I would add here. One is we should take a look at the worldwide casualties at the end of the estimates, and these are just rough estimates, 40 million casualties in the First World War. Um, deaths, 20 million. Wounded, 20 million. Civilian deaths, maybe, of that total, 10 million. And roughly 10 million military deaths. So it, it was a devastating experience for Europeans who had not had a major war in a century and for the rest of the world. And this is the first, probably the first major world war in world history. Um, so, so James, bring Asia into this. What is the aftermath of Asia, say, in the decade or so after the First World War ends? Well, something really important happened um, at Versailles when the students, the Italian government in the spring of 1915 essentially uh, proselytized itself. Um, with the war in military stalemate, uh, both coalitions began to look for allies, believing that by adding an ally to them might be able to break that stalemate. 
And so when the allies approached the kingdom of Italy, the kingdom of Italy provided the allies with a list of territorial demands, telling Great Britain and France, look, if you will promise that we get these territories, once Italy was achieved, we will join forces with you. It just so happened that the territories that the Italians wanted at that particular time belonged to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and consequently the British, the French, and the Russians had no difficulty promising somebody else's territories. And so Italy joins I the war. It, but you're welcome and, to it. Yeah, yeah, Italy joins the war, and although she doesn't make a significant military contribution to the ultimate victory achieved by the Allies, when an Italian delegation headed by Prime Minister Orlando shows up at Paris in January 1919, he and members of his delegation expect to receive the territories that they had been promised in May 1915. Well, thanks in large measure to President Woodrow Wilson, the Italians do not get all of those territories, and consequently the Italian delegation leaves Paris extremely angry and extremely disappointed. This anger and this disappointment will become pervasive in Italian society, and many Italians will not only come to blame the democratic government of Italy, but will also blame Italy's former allies. And this will provide fertile ground for the emergence of Benito Mussolini and the Italian fascist movement that originates in 1919. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt that one of Mussolini's selling points was his advocacy of Italian nationalism, his, his claim that the fascists would make Italy great again, um, and that he would reestablish the old Roman Empire. And so disappointment in the territorial settlement of the Paris Peace Conference certainly fueled fascism in Italy. Um, in, in, in Germany, the loss of territories, roughly 13% of Germany's pre-war continental territory, and all of Germany's overseas colonies certainly um, was a, a, a was, were selling points for not just Adolf Hitler, but other right-wing movements in, in Germany. And Robert, pick up on that, these post-war grievances that different nations are feeling for one reason or another, is really feeling resentment that's turning back. That would be uh, the case, certainly, as, as Bruce pointed out in earlier in his intervening. But I think I just want to add one more thing that comes out of the Versailles settlement, is it redrew the map of Europe. Now, at the end of the war, how many empires fell? The German Empire fell, the Austrian Empire fell, the Turkish Empire fell, the Russian Empire fell. And, and as a consequence of this, the, all these new states appeared, and they had aspirations, and they had resentments. And we can think about Yugoslavia, the new Czech, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, these are all new states, and they are fragile. They're supposed to be democracies, but they're fragile democracies. And James, what are some of the things that lead uh, to Japan's uh, immersion into a more fascist or uh, expansionist mindset? I think some of the same things that uh, both uh, Bruce and Robert touched on, uh, you just have the rise of militarist factions in the, in the Japanese government in the mid-30s onward. In these factions are, are ones that want to expand Japan's territorial aims and essentially view themselves as the sort of big brothers of uh, South and East Asia. And um, in doing so, they, they sort of see themselves as a, as a sort of liberating presence and, and want to eliminate you know, Western countries' colonial influence uh, throughout the, the, uh, the Asian uh, world. And, and there is some historic enmity between Japan and China. Uh, talk a little bit about where that comes from and how that has played out militarily and economically even before we get to the 1930s. Yeah, well, um, you can go back as far as even to 1895 in the first Sino-Japanese War. Um, and this had to do with the collapse of the, the Korean state. And Japan and China basically went to war over who was going to control uh, Korea. Japan wins out, and it's a sort of huge upset. And from then on, really, Japan is, is, becomes more and more the regional top dog. And, Prior to that, and even still in the early part of the 20th century, Japan was a very popular place for, for Chinese students to go and study. Because Japan in the 19th century had 
modernized economy, we had become an industrialized state, and uh, its universities were, were more westernized. And so Chinese students really um, wanted to go there and study. And a lot of the early political leaders, like the founder of the Nationalist Party himself, Chen Yat-sen, actually also studied in Japan. But by the 1920s, especially because of what happened at Versailles, there's this sort of a rising anti-foreignism in uh, China directed not only at Western countries and their colonial presence in various treaty ports, but also at, uh, at Japan. So by the time we get to the mid-1930s, nations have aspirations, nations are experiencing both some historical and recent grievances leavened with the sense of cultural uh, hegemony that some might feel for, for one reason or another. And, and maybe that this is the time to sort of bring us a little bit deeper into the twisted mind of Adolf Hitler. What is it that he's doing in the midst of all this concept, uh, consternation uh, across the globe? And how does this idea of Lebensraum, of adding more territory and, and, and reaching greatness, allow him to place himself on a, on a German pedestal? Well, from, from, from very early on, and when I say from very early on, I'm speaking from the early 1920s, um, Hitler's worldview revolved around two doctrines uh, that were not mutually exclusive, that were in fact closely connected, and those two doctrines were the race and space. Uh, it's very important to understand saw um, Germans, Aryan Germans, those whose blood was not tainted by foreign blood, to be members of a superior race commonly known as the Aryans. Um, he believed that Aryans were the only people in the world capable of creating culture and civilization, that other peoples in the world were capable either of uh, imitating uh, civilization or destroying civilization, the Jews being the people that he does identify in Mein Kampf as the uh, race capable only of destroying civilization. And in, in terms of Lebensraum or space, when Hitler and other members of the Nazi movement used this expression, they were referring specifically uh, to land that could be colonized and upon which uh, food could be grown. Um, Hitler believed, and you can uh, find these beliefs in Mein Kampf, in his speeches, in his letters, uh, believed that Aryan Germans um, did not have sufficient space and that if they were to survive as a people and if they were to reproduce, which because they were racially superior, they needed to reproduce for uh, the good of the world, they would need more space. And so if you read Mein Kampf, 1924, 1925, you will see that Hitler talks about acquiring Lebensraum through the use of force and he identifies the East, the Soviet Union, as the best source of Lebensraum in, in Europe. Um, and what this really means is that, that from the moment Hitler becomes Chancellor of the Weimar Republic on January 30th, 1933, his ultimate goal was to, to wage and win a series of wars that would in the short term allow the racially superior Germans to claim the Lebensraum that they need, but ultimately to achieve their position in the world that they deserve as a, by virtue of their racial superiority, which is global nationalism. So Robert, let me follow up with what might be kind of an inanswerable and unfair burden for you uh, uh, to respond to. Why do ordinary Germans, to the extent that we can know, why do they agree to follow in this course of action? Well, there could be a good practical reason, and one was that the Allied blockade of Germany during World War One, begin, beginning about 1916, Germany had a severe food shortage. And by the last year, couple of years of the war, there's actual starvation possible in Germany. And Hitler picks up on the idea Germany is not self-sufficient in natural resources. And so he talks about a concept he calls Ackerland. And the idea is you need the land for food, but you also need oil, and you need other natural resources. And these also are what we feed in the East. Um, so I can suspect Germans who starve through um, the Allied blockade would be very sympathetic to the idea of we're going to guarantee a, a 
supplied natural resources under german control and it was being in the east particularly in russia but also in poland partly which areas were had been previously german and partly which were inhabited by slavic peoples who hitler considered subhuman and james japan has some natural resource needs of their own and if they are going to reach their potential from their perspective they're looking for some space where they might acquire that as well that brings them into some conflict with some of their neighbors and of course including china right and from 1931 onward japan was trying to build something they call the greater east asia co-prospering sphere created a propagator for all asian populations that japan was sort of the kind of you know a big brother to and something really key also happens in 1931 in september in manchuria and in shenyang some rogue japanese military officers blow up some uh a portion of railway of railroad tracks and then blame this event uh on the chinese and this is uh events like this are uh just used as sort of cannon fodder and more more of an excuse for the japanese to increase its territorial uh presence in in north china and japanese like you said that japan like you said has a great interest in a lot of this natural resources especially in the dutch east indies uh of the region and that's why they're one reason among others they're creating this co-prospering sphere and maybe this could be kind of a segue into uh you know talking about pearl harbor but one of the reasons why the japanese eventually decide to attack pearl harbor is hold on we're getting there don't don't jump the shark okay uh you're listening to 30 brave minutes of broadcast service of the college of arts and sciences at unc pembroke i'm jeff frederick and we're talking about world war ii today our panel includes robert brown bruce de hart and james hudson so let's get into some of the military action when the germans unleash blitzkrieg in september of 1939 it's devastating um and the military action which just a couple decades earlier had largely been characterized by stalemate is entirely different why is that and why are they so much better at this early on in the second world war than some of the nations they're steamrolling over well i think during the 1930s germany's military leadership worked to develop what becomes this this new name of war commonly referred to as as blitzkrieg and what the germans do is they combine armored divisions mechanized infantry traditional infantry with tactical air power and when the germans have issue on september the 1st 1939 they find a very vulnerable opponent in the poles who's mobilized very very slowly not because they did not expect an attack but because the british and the french told them not to mobilize fully so as not to give the germans any any justification for a war but moreover the the poles made a number of mistakes they decided to defend their entire western frontier and consequently their forces were spread in such a way that when the german army spearheads struck polish frontier defenses they were able to pierce them very very easily to drive deep into the interior and to conduct these encircling operations that ended up destroying most of poland's army in the western portion of the country and so whereas the german military is developing what becomes this new way of war the british and the french have reached the conclusion that in the worst case scenario they have to wage another type of war they're going to fight that war the same way they won world war 1 and that is to stand on the defensive and the great manifestation of this perspective is the maginot line that the french began to construct uh in 1928 and of course when the germans turned west in may 1940 uh they simply go through the northern forest and around the maginot line one thing that i would add here is that the germans were not the only ones to develop this new way of warfare in the soviet union marshal mikhail tukhachevsky who was considered the leading general in the soviet army had begun to develop what the soviets called the concept of deep battle 
It was essentially the Soviet version of Blitzkrieg, the concentration of armored units, mechanized uh, infantry, traditional infantry, and tactical air support. Uh, but unfortunately for Tukhachevsky and unfortunately for the Soviet Union, in 1937, Stalin purged Tukhachevsky, meaning had him arrested and killed with much of the rest of the Army, Navy, and Air Force leadership. And at that particular point, the Soviet military reverted back to this old defensive notion of warfare. Thoughts, Robert? Yeah, uh, what I'm going to add, Mr. Gee has not mentioned the impact of the Great Depression. And I think, you know, it's hard to imagine that Mussolini comes to power in 
the following December in 37, when the Japanese occupied the city of Nanjing, not too far from Shanghai in the southeastern coastal area, and committed unspeakable atrocities at rape and massacre of the civilian population that became known as the Rape of Nanjing. And so by fall of 1937, China and Japan are fully at war, and most of the Japanese military will go on to be committed in the China theater. So why Pearl Harbor? What is it that leads them to make that decision? Because they knew well, I suppose, was it Isoroku Yamamoto's reaction that the sleeping giant has been awakened and his reaction will be fierce? They certainly knew what would happen had they done that. Why did they attack at Pearl Harbor, and what did they hope to achieve? Well, there's a few things going on there. In the mid-1940s, Roosevelt had decided to move the U.S. Pacific Fleet from San Diego to Hawaii. Japan, in the same year, had invaded Indochina, attempting to cut off supplies reaching China, and as a result, the United States had halted all shipments of machines and parts and equipment to Japan, which was perceived as an extremely hostile act. And so by the time you have Pearl Harbor happen, Japan is sort of wanting to kind of preemptively halt any kind of U.S. presence in – possible U.S. presence or intervention in Asia, and that's the reason why Pearl Harbor happens. So the Germans have their own interesting decision that they make with Barbarossa and the invasion of the Soviet Union. Things had been going so well at that point in time. Why did they make that decision, and how close did it come to being the success that the Germans had hoped it would be? Well, as I indicated earlier from the early to mid-1920s, Hitler had stated that his goal once he got into power, and he believed that he would get into power, was to conquer Lebensraum, Lebensspace in the east. He makes it very clear to Mein Kampf and in another – in many other places that he recognized that Lebensraum in the east would have to be conquered through the use of force. So from the moment he comes to power in 1933, he thought in terms of a war against the Soviet Union at some point in the future. But it's extremely significant to understand that Hitler did not think in terms of refighting the First World War. He thought in terms of fighting a series of relatively short wars against isolated opponents. By late 1937, it was very, very clear that the First War was to be against Czechoslovakia, which he referred to as a French aircraft carrier in Central Europe. Since the early 1920s, France and Czechoslovakia had in fact had a military alliance, a defensive military alliance. The Second War was to be waged in the West against the French and the British to clear up his western flank. The Third War was to be in the east against the Soviet Union, which would allow Germany to destroy the headquarters of Judeo-Bolshevism and claim Lebensraum and all of these other resources, which would prepare the way for a fourth and final war against the United States of America, which from Hitler's perspective would be a relatively easy war because America was a racially mongrel country according to Hitler's bizarre perspective. And so a war against the Soviet Union was a part of Hitler's political, geopolitical, military agenda from day one. What happens in the summer of 1940 surprised Hitler. Once the Germans had conquered western Europe and forced the French to capitulate, the Fuhrer was absolutely certain that the British would follow the French and capitulate. But because of Winston Churchill, who became prime minister on May the 10th, the very day that the Germans invaded western Europe, Britain made what Hitler considered to be the foolish and unwise decision to stay in the war. And when Hitler gave serious thought as to the best way to get Britain to recognize that she was defeated, he concluded at the end of July 1940 that the fundamental reason that Great Britain refused to quit the war was because she held out hope that at some point in the future both the United States and the Soviet Union would come to Great Britain's rescue. 
And so at this meeting of military leaders on July the 1st, Hitler says that next year we are going to attack the Soviet Union. Uh, we will fulfill our ambitions to procure a Lebensraum. And once we defeat the Soviet Union, that will eliminate the possibility of the Soviet Union coming to Great Britain's assistance. Britain will recognize that the Soviet Union is not coming to her assistance, but moreover, Hitler reasoned that this would free up the Japanese to move south against British, against French, against Dutch possessions, and against the United States, and with the United States tied down against the Japanese in the Far East. Um, that would eliminate what Hitler perceived to be yet another hope for Great Britain. And so it's at the end of July, 1940, according to the documentary evidence we have, that Hitler decided that next year we are moving east. And they do move east starting on Sunday, June 22nd, 1941. Uh, they catch the Soviet Union completely unprepared, largely because Stalin, in his typical brilliance, ignored uh, warnings from the United States, warnings from Great Britain, warnings from his own intelligence agents. And consequently, when 3.3 million German soldiers attack the Soviet Union, they're able to breach the Soviet front and advance very, very rapidly into the Soviet interior. German offensive operations in 1941 would continue until early December when the Germans break off operations just short of Moscow and just in time for the Soviets to launch a highly surprising and highly effective counterattack that pushes portions of the German military back in some places as much as 100 miles. Uh, but in, in terms of your question, how close did Barbarossa come to achieving victory? Uh, my perspective is that it never came close. And in much of the traditional older literature, credit for the survival of the Soviet Union in 1941 is given to the rain, to the mud, to the snow, to the freezing temperatures. And we certainly do know that starting in October 41, the weather turned bad, rains turned the Soviet dirt, network, dirt roads into quagmires, and then you get freezing conditions and you get harsh temperatures and you get snow, and there's no doubt that Soviet sol that German soldiers certainly suffered from all of these conditions. But by the time the weather turned poorly in October 1941, Barbarossa had failed, and this is the reason why. In order for the Germans to defeat the Soviet Union, the, the Germans understood this themselves. They had to emasculate Soviet military power in the opening weeks of the campaign. And while they did inflict literally millions of casualties and destroyed untold millions of tons of Soviet equipment, they captured over three million soldiers. The Soviet Union had plenty of soldiers to spare. And so in my estimation, Barbarossa never came close to achieving success. But let me emphasize that there are others who would disagree with that. And I think the point is also the, the front was, what, a thousand miles long. I mean, and you think of attacking a, on a front a thousand miles, even though they, they concentrated their forces aimed at cities like St. Petersburg or, or, uh, and, and Moscow, but they never achieved the decisive battle to defeat the Soviet forces. They never captured St. Petersburg. They never captured Moscow. And the war, I think, as Bruce has pointed out, bogs down in the fall of 1941. And at that point, they even, I think, in some German military figures, think basically realized the war was won. It won on the east. But we also have to remember that, you know, after, as we mentioned Pearl Harbor, that after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States declares war on Japan. We do not declare war on Germany. And so the other big event, I think, of 1941 is the fact that Hitler declares war on the United States on what, the 10th of, 9th or 10th of December. And that brings us into a world war that might have been delayed a bit um, if Hitler had not declared war on us. And then the American calculus project into um, what maybe 75, 80% of their resources in the, the European theater as opposed to what as opposed to the Asian theater. theater, yes. This is Chancellor Robin Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. 
Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu slash give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. So we'll, we'll turn our attention really in a slightly different way at this point in time. Um, maybe outside of the, the, the military and the battle conflicts, tell our listeners just something about the Second World War that they, they, they otherwise might surprise them or they would never get. Several things. Um, the beginning of the war in September 1939 provided Al Hooker with an opportunity to do something that he said he would do once war came. The murder of mentally and physically disabled Germans. In early October 1939, with the fighting in Poland on the verge of concluding, Hitler issued a written authorization on his personal space unit providing physicians across Germany with the authority to grant, quote, a mercy death, unquote, to those of their patients deemed incurable. This marks the beginning of the infamous T4 program, which targeted mentally and physically disabled German adults. This particular program continued until it was suspended in late August 1941, and by the time it was suspended, an estimated 70,000 disabled German adults had been killed. Some of them were killed through starvation. Some of them were killed through lethal injections of phenol into the heart, but many of them were killed in gas chambers disguised as showers found in six euthanasia centers located across Germany. Second thing I would bring up, and some people may be aware of this, but the German victories in Western Europe in 1940 had global ramifications. In Washington, D.C., Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was about to finish his second term in office, made the decision to stand for an unprecedented third term. We have all of the evidence to suggest that had the war not taken that particular turn, had the British and the French stopped the German invasion of Western Europe, Roosevelt would have shuffled off into retirement at Hyde Park. He had begun making preparations for his presidential library there. His good friend, his secretary of the treasury, his Hyde Park neighbor, Henry Morgenthau, said as much subsequently that the president was on his way into retirement. Closely associated with this, Roosevelt makes the commitment in the summer of 1914 to do whatever he can to make sure that the British stayed in the war. He understood as of June 1940 that the only thing standing between Nazi Germany, which he had already come to perceive as a terrible, terrible threat, and the good old United States of America was Great Britain, that aircraft carrier. He will also initiate preparations in the United States for the worst case scenario, the United States must join the war. In Tokyo, the other side of the globe, the German victories led Japanese political and military leaders to conclude that an opportunity existed to claim those British, French, and Dutch territories in the southern resource areas, the East Indies, for example, Burma, for example, Malaya, for example, uh, that the British, the French, and the Dutch could no longer defend. And so, um, Jane, Dr. Hudson talked about Pearl Harbor. Um, let me emphasize that Pearl Harbor was designed to destroy American naval power in the Pacific long enough to give Japanese military forces the opportunity to claim those territories and then to establish a defensive perimeter so strong that the United States would not be willing to expend the blood and treasure necessary to reclaim territories that most Americans had never heard of. And so what I'm suggesting here is that the road to the military operations in the Far East that the Japanese launched in December 1941 at the same time they attacked Pearl Harbor began with those German invasions in Western Europe. And here we have uh, the manifestations of a true global war. The third thing, and I apologize for being long-winded, but I, I think these points are extremely important. 
The victories that the Germans win across Europe, starting in Poland in September 1939 and ending at the gates of Moscow in December 1941, brought a majority of Europe's Jewish population under German control, either directly or indirectly. And so when historians and others claim the failure of the British and the Americans and the international community in the 1930s to let more Jews into their countries doom the Jews of Europe, I take issue with that. What doomed the Jews of Europe was the inability of those countries waging war against Germany starting in 1939 to defeat the Germans. Robert, something that uh, listeners don't know? Yeah. I guess what I would add is the, a key factor in the Second World War is the power, not just of the press, but of visual media. And the fact that, you, you know, people did not see it on their TV like we do today, but they saw newsreels. And, you know, in Germany in the 1930s, when Hitler is building up his power, there is an excessive sort of flooding of the Germans with visual imagery. When the Germans invade Poland in 1935, there is immense amount of imagery. And that imagery, I think, convinces a lot of the rest of the what I would call the myth of the blitzkrieg. Because in point of fact, when the Germans invade Poland in 1939, a good amount of the German military goes down on the road. But that's not what you see in the newsreels, whether they were shown in you know, Germany, Britain, or the United States. And then we can go on and talk about um, the, the blitz, say, for example, in England. And how did Americans learn about the blitz? Well, you read about it in the newspaper, and you probably saw some newsreels. But who did you hear on the radio? You hear Edward R. Murray, you know, saying, here is London, what, broadcasting from London, and he's supposedly standing up on top of a building, and he puts the mic up in the air, and you can hear the planes and the bombs coming down. Well, you know, it brings war, I think, to home, and, you know, maybe certainly what it, you know, hardens the American determination back up Roosevelt in his defense of England. Um, so I think, you know, the media, whether it's imagery, the photographs, you know, the newsreel, the, the print journalism, and then the, yeah, the number of books that are published during the war uh, by journalists um, and so forth um, was a new factor. And it's a, the importance of the media is something that just exploded since that. We've taken for granted, but I think there was something much newer in the late 1930s and the 1940s. So, quick final question, and we'll set the stage for the second part of our podcast um, that we'll record in the coming uh, days. So, as we transition from the summer of 1942 into the fall of 1942, a, a time that's pretty important for events in, in both theaters of war, what is it that ordinary people in a country, what is it that they truly know about what's happening in terms of the conflict? Uh, you've mentioned a little bit about growing media coverage and radio and newsreels and um, uh, to some extent newspaper coverage. What do people really know in 1942 about what's really happening on the ground? Well, I think in the Soviet Union, people know that victory is still a long ways off and that victory will require even greater sacrifices than those that have already been made. Well, in, in most countries, of course, the press was, you know, I spoke about the positive aspect, but the press, the press was tightly controlled by the governments, particularly in Germany, particularly in occupied territories, particularly in the Soviet Union, maybe to a lesser extent in Britain and in uh, the United States. Um, so, you know, what people actually knew was filtered through censorship, let's put it that way. 
But I do know, and I can speak from personal experience here, that my, my wife's parents are German, and they went through the war in Germany. My father, my father-in-law served in the German army, and my mother-in-law went through the war in Berlin. And I think what, what they knew, if they knew anything at all, they really couldn't talk about because of the fear in Germany of being reported by the secret police, by block wardens who monitored everybody in your neighborhood about what they said, about neighbors who could denounce you to the police or the Gestapo, and yeah, you had no civil rights attorneys. You could be arrested and hauled off. Um, but nonetheless, information got back. There were soldiers that served in the groups. The, there were soldiers who observed, as Bruce was mentioning, the deport, uh, movement of rounding up the Jews in Polish cities and taking them out and being shot. And we know now that soldiers in the Wehrmacht either observed or participated in this. Um, and I suspect that word got back even if it was not spoken about publicly. So people did know. Uh, what we knew in the United States, my father was in Second World War. My mother kept a scrapbook, which I still have, but much of which in the scrapbook comes out of the newspapers, comes out of Life magazine, um, and you know other public available sources. And so it gave the American government's position on the you know the progress of the war. Fascinating discussion today about one of the truly seminal events in world history. We'll complete the story to the extent that we can next time. We'll pick up uh, the uh, military action. We'll talk about the home front, certainly talk about uh, elements related to the Holocaust, and of course the aftermath of the war, both in America, um, in, in Asia, and in Europe. Thanks to all of you for joining us today on 30 Great Minutes. Join us again next week. Today's podcast was edited by Richard Gay and transcribed by Janet Gentis. Theme music created by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves! Good job, everybody!